how can I channel this position that I have to create value? And then if I create value, I'm not worried. I will be able to derive value back for myself and my family, so to speak. This is The Playbook. I have an incredible entrepreneur, the CEO of Watch Mojo, Ashkin Carb. Carbass Bruchon. And I said it as slow as I could. It's asking, welcome to the playbook. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Well, you know, you have been what I call a, a, a serial entrepreneur, someone who has an open mind and open art and open hands and utilizing that skill, those uh, and knowledge that you've acquired, but also there's a certain desire uh, when you're building a business to do well but also to do good. Um, when did you make this mindset shift that you could not only do good, because it seems in your history, you've always wanted to do good, but also do well to do good? Great question. I mean, look, it starts off with like, you have to accept that human beings were driven by insecurities. You know, there are good insecurities and bad insecurities. Um, and I think, you know, I consider myself very lucky. I, I wouldn't call myself a self-made you know, person. There's a lot of shoulders we all stand on, but I, I definitely admit that, you know, if your name is Ashkan Carbus Frushan, growing up in North America, I'm, I'm from Montreal, Canada, um, studying media and finance, you are a bit of an outsider. You know, there's just, you have to understand that you're a bit of an underdog, you're a bit of an outsider, your name is different, you might look different, and we are all different, and, and we're all kind of outsiders in one way or another. Um, and so admittedly, you want to be accepted, you want to be kind of sitting at the big person's big boy's table. Um, but, but my main thing was that I wanted to help. I wanted to add value. I always want to be part of the solution. I always felt whatever problems were, were you know, going on between people, between groups, I realized I was drawn to try to solve those problems. You know, I call it my King Solomon complex. You know, I legitimately want to solve people's pain points. So it starts with that. You know, my insecurity ultimately was trying to be constructive to solve problems. So if you start with that, eventually um, when you are applying to join an organization, and in my case, I studied business, so it was probably going to be a for-profit organization, you realize before long that either you're aligned in terms of principles or you're not aligned in terms of principles with the organizations you work for or where you wanna uh, apply to work for. So for me, entrepreneurship, a business degree and all that were means to an end. So from the get-go, I wanted to help others, serve others. You know, I kind of said I'm more long-term greedy to use that, uh, you know, adage. And so from the get-go, it was always about how can I channel this position that I have to create value? And then if I create value, I'm not worried. I will be able to derive value back for myself and my family, so to speak. So for me, my earliest memories was, was, were always about trying to eliminate other people's pain points. And through that, you are really an expert in three areas. You've even written books about them from leadership to management to you know, organizational culture. Um, but how did you apply you know, this vast experience into you know, what I call the typical entrepreneurial overnight success? You know, over a decade, it took you to yet as an entrepreneur's manifesto, you know, you built Watch Mojo into what I consider the most successful of all media brands on YouTube. Uh, how traditional experience and education that you have, how did that apply 
you know, to this new world of YouTube and have such great success according to your philosophies and strategies of leadership, management, and organizational culture? Thank you. Those are all very kind things to say. Thank you very much. Um, so, I mean, look, I, I viewed education always as a, as a tool, you know, and it's like, I think a mistake a lot of young graduates make is they say, well, I studied marketing, ergo, I'm a marketer. I go, no, 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 no. I go, you have, you know, I also studied a few philosophy classes, read a few philosophy books. So Plato, the great Greek philosopher, you know, he talks a lot about the principle of specialization and comparative advantage, which is based, which is the basis of all like economic theory, you know, one country is good at apples, the other one is good at gold, and they trade accordingly, so to speak. So for me, I was about finding my comparative advantage. And that's what I tell others, I go, you probably have something, a skill and interest where you are like the Tiger Woods, the LeBron James, the Michael, you know, Jordan of that field, maybe not compared to everybody in the world, but compared to 99% of the world. That is what you should focus on because you're going to lap others who are going to give up, who are not going to stay, you know, in the, in the marathon. But then you combine it with your educational skill set. So if you studied engineering, very different way to apply that than if you study marketing or finance. So for me, I wanted optionality. I would speak to teachers in sociology, history, psychology, things I liked, and they themselves were like, look, you seem like somebody who's always leaning in, very proactive, wants to help. They're almost too eager, almost annoying, but your intentions are good. And they would just say, if you want to have as many options, and you're telling me you don't like pure and applied, you don't like the sight of blood, so don't go into medicine and all that. They were like going to business because business is a tool, it gets a bad rep, but if your intentions are good, it's a very powerful skill set to have. And then within business, relatively speaking, I love marketing, I love management, I love you know international business and all that. But it is true that finance gives you a little bit more of like you know optionality within the, the field of business. So for me, at the very onset, I liked that business allowed me to debate not only through emotion, but also through logic and numbers to explain why we should take path A versus path B, even if path A was a bit more granola, hippie, idealistic, relative to like, you know, the cutthroat corporate approach. So starting off, to me, it was a way to kind of drop the gloves and be able to go at it with the toughest, you know, accountant who was really just kind of looking at the bottom line, so to speak. But then once I started my career, I then almost flipped overnight where I said, you know what, if the objective of a financial manager is to maximize shareholder value, yeah, I have zero passion or interest for that because I did believe very early on in the concept of externalities. And today that's very popular. You know, a company that produces a billion of plastic bottles of water, they may generate, you know, a hundred million of profits per quarter, but that excludes the cost of the environment, right? So I knew that I wasn't necessarily going to be in this game of marathon, passionate, forget even passionate. My heart wouldn't be in it to be there and discuss how do we squeeze this stakeholder, the employees, or how do we screw this stakeholder, the community to maximize our profits? That was not, I was not going to be the Michael Jordan of that game, right? So very quickly, I realized going back to being Ashkan Karbisfushan, a Canadian, Muslim-born, Iranian, you know, something that was not going to fit in many checkboxes post 9-11, I knew that I had to write my own ticket, meaning I had to create my own job when I would apply to companies. It's not a coincidence that none of my jobs before starting Watch Mojo existed before my interview. 
I would go in for an interview. I was this like wild card, lots of ambition, lots of drive, very inexperienced though. And the company would be like, okay, it was almost like that Seinfeld episode with Kramer where they were like, you don't even work here, you know? It was like, we could surely do something with this guy, but it'll have to be rethinking the formula. And many people did not have time. A few people gave me those opportunities and they were willing to say, okay, clearly you don't fit in this box, but let's discuss how you could help. And so early on, I was really a lot more entrepreneurial to create jobs. And then when I had jobs working for others or great opportunities, I didn't think I was an entrepreneur. But over time in my early 20s, I realized I was more of an intrapreneur where I was the guy that, you know, the, 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 the employer, my boss would say, okay, we're all kind of repeating the blocking and tackling that is required to keep the lights on and payroll and all. But you seem like you could figure out, like I open an Ikea box, there's like two pages, four steps, I, I sweat, I panic. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. But you throw me in the jungle and you say, get out alive. I'm like, okay, I'll get out alive. And I'll get all the wolves and the bears to join my posse and say, okay, <laughs> we're going to work with this guy, right? So it was actually, I was more of a reluctant entrepreneur because again, I kind of narrowed and realized, hey, if you really want to walk to the beat of your own drums, you can't expect a given corporation, a given employer to derail what they're doing because of your principles, because of your ideals. You need to do it yourself. And that's basically the genesis of Watch Mojo, which was a means to an end. It wasn't so much about, I want to be telling stories through video or about YouTube. Those were all the means to the end of just being able to treat employees the way I felt I, felt I wanted to be treated, being able to you know, play a constructive role in the community and et cetera, et cetera. And video is a great platform to do that. And we brought up a little bit of history, but Shakespeare to me has more impact today for two reasons. Uh, one, which I see on Watch Mojo, which is to thine own self be true. Uh, you know, we have a great frequency uh, because of the spectrumization of content and the extraordinary reach with billions of people uh, to be able to narrow down and to have our own frequency uh, as you have many adjectives to describe yourself uh, from Canadian down. Uh, but also, I think more importantly, it seemed to me that you had uh, an understanding of the four Shakespearean principles that apply to the world as your stage. We talked about the incredible reach, but you were capable of capturing the content that you wanted for the means. You, you modified it better and evolved, obviously, over the 10 years, but it, it evolved. You, you really modify the content so it's aligned with the frequency or spectrum that people are looking for, listening for. I think that's a key to being a speaker and author is the ones that speak to you never win. The ones that know what they're listening for and modify their content so it aligns with what they're listening for. Then the amplification side, you're a master of. But the, the area that I find most interesting and it's the psychological aspect of being an entrepreneur, is did you inherently have a foresight that the content that you created at first was perpetual, that it was an aggregate, it had a compound effect of what you were going to do? Or, you know, like, was it just something that evolved uh, as you learned about the platform? Did you understand that last component? Because I still think today one of the things that separates me as a content creator is that I build content that's perpetual, uh, that builds on itself, that can be accessed. My TED Talk gets more views today than it did you know, six years ago when I did it. 
because I understood the perpetual nature of community and content. How are that Shakespearean revival, as I'll call it, was that in your psychology as an entrepreneur that this would build and compound? Yes and no, to be fair. Uh, like everybody revisionist here, uh, you know, history. So for sure, I was a big believer in this concept of evergreen content that was timeless, that had shelf life, because content creation is hard. So if you're in the news business, like I love news, but I would never want to be in the news business because it's oh, just, I hate news. No, it's, a thankless, <laughs> it's a thankless job, you know? That's such a um, Canadian thing to say. You love news. We hate news here. <laughs> it's no, separate. but I mean, news is important because of the stories to be, but I'm just saying to be in the business of news, very different. Yeah. So, Here's the reality, right? I mean, in business school, you hear about vision and mission. And even today, you almost need, you know, shortcut tricks to remember what's what. But ultimately, the vision is like the why, you know, the thing that doesn't change. And the mission is like the how, how you accomplish that. So for me, admittedly, in that vision, you know, I would say our statement of purpose is here to serve. But our, our vision was always to inform and entertain. And admittedly, I would say one of the pillars was always it should be evergreen content. Um, and, and a few other things. But admittedly, the how, the mission did evolve. At first, we wanted a video on every topic, biographies, profiles, how-tos, uh, you know, many other things. I always knew that the world was going towards this massive explosion, democratization of production, publishing, distribution of content. And also, you know, Time Magazine in 2006 said you, Y-O-U is the person of the year because everybody was becoming a, a storyteller. So I could just see like my economics background that like the demand of content would grow, but the supply of content would just blow up. So admittedly, a few years into it, I just felt that we could not be everything to everyone. As much as your ego, and we all have egos, it's just keeping it within a healthy range. As much as I was like, I want to be a storyteller and I want to write long form essays and long form documentary videos, I was like, the world is going towards an abundance of content, but also short attention spans. And I remember going to some conferences and once we kind of realized that, you know what, audiences are not necessarily going to sit through a long video unless there's like a need or really passionate about it. But they are going to sit through lists, even if it's the same information. And I was like, you may have to trick your audience ethically to educate them on history and science and facts. But through lists, it gives them kind of like a short, abridged version of a topic. And I remember going to conferences where when I would explain that, people would be like, oh, so do you want to be the BuzzFeed of video? And I was like, I think BuzzFeed wants to be the BuzzFeed of video, but that's a side <laughs> point. Um, but for me, it was always that it was more to respect the viewer user's time to go, they're not going to sit through. It's like a recipe. You want the recipe quickly. You don't want to read a story of when I was a kid growing up in Tuscany, I would go see my grandmother and she would pick tomatoes. You're just like, what is the recipe? How do I get this tomato sauce not to burn? Right? So <laughs> for me, it was about a fundamental desire. You know, Amazon, I'm not saying Jeff Bezos is not flawless. He has many flaws, but I do admire that obsession to empathize with the client, to say, look, we may want to put the client through all these hoops, but the client wants to be able to pick the item, one click, it's at their house tomorrow. That is really powerful. So my evolution as a storyteller to say, hey, maybe lists over other form factors is the way to go. And two, yeah, you know what? I'd love to cover everything, but the grandma will be able to use this state-of-the-art piece of technology and produce a great recipe. Whereas if we're kind of faking it to make it, it won't be authentic. And ultimately the other big bet was 
you know, Michael Milken, a, a famous investor says, the best investor is a social scientist. I could see fundamentally that kids who grew up reading comic books had now grown up in decision makers on Madison Avenue and Wall Street and Hollywood and Silicon Valley. So I was like, wait, there's going to be more movies with Batman and Spider-Man. You know, I go like, instead of an athlete on the Wheaties box of cereal, there's going to be Iron Man. And so we ourselves were fans of Seinfeld and musicians and video games and TV shows and movies. So I just was like, look, we got to eat the dog food. We got to package it in a way that if we are the user, we would want to eat this content. But also we really got to focus where, because it's a long you know, game of marathon, I go, we have to kind of like produce content that passes our sniff test. Because if we're not consuming all the content we're producing and we're only consuming a part of it, isn't that the answer to why we're not more successful? It's brilliant. And I know you talk about that too on the podcast, Context TV. Uh, but lastly, I wanted to touch on, you know, the true end uh, that I love about you. And I will tell you, after having this opportunity to be with you, I wish I would have met you years ago and you were interviewing for me because I could see why people made positions for you uh, because, you know, you're... Uh, expression of the genius that comes through you is amazing and the intellect that you utilize in order to articulate uh, those stories are incredible which is why you're so successful but what really caught my eye was the watch mojo foundation um i love people that do well but do good and mojo gives you know really leverages your knowledge your relationships uh for a bigger purpose um than the one that you went to school for and so I was hoping you could give us a, a little bit about uh, the foundation itself, but your main uh, purpose of Mojo Gives, of what we're trying to do with that. Sure. So again, very, very kind words. Thank you very much. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, I remember when I was like, for example, in high school, college, working at a convenience store, all the newspapers and magazines, I'd spend a lot of time reading them. And I grew up, my older brother, you know, a consultant would get Business Week and Fortune and all that. So I was a big voracious reader of these magazines. And I remember vividly, for example, when like Princess Diana would pass away, it was commonplace. It was normal for people to feature her on a special issue and consumers would buy it up. Nobody questioned it, even though effectively, sure, people was profiting from the death of somebody. But it was just kind of like the, that was the, the how media works. You know, again, CNN will cover somebody when they pass away and they're making money, but it costs money to produce content. There is a generational shift, however, now where, you know, amplified through social media, but also younger generations are always more sensitive to things and they're not wrong, right? 30, 40, 50 years ago, civil rights movement was amplified by the younger generation. So I always actually listen to young kids. I'm not like, ah, these kids are crazy. So when we wanted to cover, and we always covered people, places, and things that people were passionate about, when we wanted to cover people who had passed away, because we pay tribute to them, and when they are alive, we want to pay our respects when they pass away, we were a bit floored when there was a, it was a vocal minority, admittedly, but I still listened to everybody. When like there would be one person or two who would be like, hey, watch Mojo, love you, but you're profiting from the death of somebody, it's distasteful. And now it costs us to produce that, you know, but at the same time, I was like, okay, let's set that aside. I put myself in people's shoes. I get it. Somebody passed, you know, Heath Ledger passes away. We do a biography or top 10 moments. There are ads running. It's still not wrong that a lot of this younger generation feels that's a bit distasteful. So I kind of pulled the team together and I said, look, I know we could roll our eyes and say, these guys are crazy. 
the, the, the vocal minority. I said, but that's not the right answer. The right answer is what can we do to address that? And I said, we've long wanted to do, and we did things behind the scenes. You know, We would give money when family or friends or people would pass away. But I said, it's not about doing it publicly, but it's like, I'm all about solving and bringing alignment to different stakeholders. I said, we have an obligation to cover these people for future generations to know about, but there's clearly our existing fan base, a minority that finds this distasteful. So why don't we just take the proceeds and donate it to causes that are pertinent? A couple of years ago, YouTube did a you know, year in review. The YouTube community did not care for it. We rushed to then do our take on it. And one of the entries was a YouTube creator who tragically uh, took their own life and passed away by suicide. And so we gave all the proceeds of that video to suicide awareness and the community obviously loved that. And same thing, you know, when, when an actor passes away from prostate cancer, we'll donate the proceeds to, you know, prostate cancer research. So it's for me, a great way as a storyteller to still, and I was also a biographer. My second book was on Alexander the Great. You know, I've always written about historical figures and, and celebrities and entertainers and politicians and business people. So for me, it stayed true to my interests and principles of paying respects to people who have shaped our life, but also listening to, even if it's a vocal minority, you know, some days the vocal minority is a member of the LGBT community. Sometimes the vocal minority is a Jewish person in Germany in 1941. It could be a black person in, in Alabama in 1960. Doesn't make them wrong. So for me, admittedly, it was a great way of, you know, not shutting up, but like quieting the critics, but listening to them and doing something that in my heart I felt was the right business decision anyway. And so, you know, sometimes we, we, we have to get creative because we don't want to just do it once in a blue moon. So, you know, recently uh, one of our industry friends, their mother passed away to uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. So we kind of like, that one will work backwards where we made a small donation in her name and we'll probably do something tasteful as an excuse really to donate more money to that cause. So it's just a way for me to uh, give back uh, but also stay true to our, our our personal and professional principles. You're a true compassionate capitalist, uh, <laughs> someone who I am not disappointed other than I didn't meet you earlier uh, to have on the playbook because your playbook to success is one that should be used, especially today uh, as we live in this Shakespearean revival of finding our own frequency, the you type of content, as well as this idea of capturing the right content, modifying it correctly, amplifying it even further, but most importantly, perpetuating for the betterment of all and listening to all, which I love about what you do. You are an intelligent follower, which makes you a great leader. Askan, thank you for joining me and sharing your playbook.